Dateline, Salt Lake Herald Republican, January 1st, 1882. Quote, the Gardo House has been finished, furnished, and fitted up as a residence for the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and his family, the work being done under the direction of a committee appointed by the Council of Apostles, composed of Moses Thatcher, William Jennings, and Angus M. Cannon. And he will inaugurate his occupancy by receiving such of his many friends as may call upon him tomorrow between the hours of 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. The Herald wishes the president many years of health and happiness in his new home. End quote. I'm Wendy. This is Demolish Salt Lake and the story of the Gardo House. Hello and welcome to episode 17. I want to start off with a shout out to my new patrons, Sue, Gary, Bryant, Samuel, and Quinn. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. There's a lot of lead work that goes into creating content for the podcast, and your support helps with the cost of equipment, subscription fees to various research websites, hosting fees, and software. If you'd like to join my Patreon, there are two tiers to choose from. Both come with warm fuzzies and my eternal gratitude. Plus, you get a really cool Demolish Salt Lake sticker. You can find the link to my Patreon in the show notes or in my bio on my social media accounts. Okay, so I talked a bit about the Gardo House back in episode one. Susanna Bransford of the Bransford Apartments lived there for a time with her husband, Colonel Edwin Holmes, but that was only one chapter of the life of this house. It had many chapters in its short life of 39 years. So let's dive in. We'll start in the 1870s with Brigham Young, who at the time was the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He wanted a place outside of the church offices to greet and entertain officials and dignitaries. So he set about selecting a lot and appointing an architect. He chose the southwest corner of South Temple and State Street, which today is 70 East South Temple. This lot was conveniently located across the street from his own house. Joseph Ridges and William Harris Folsom were appointed to design the house and oversee construction. Joseph Ridges is best known as the designer and builder of the Grand Tabernacle Organ located in Temple Square. William Folsom was the architect for the Provo Tabernacle, Manti Temple, Council Hall, Salt Lake Tabernacle, St. George Temple and Tabernacle, Salt Lake Theater, and a few other private residences. Folsom was also Young's father-in-law. Young married Folsom's daughter, Amelia, in 1863. She was Young's 25th wife and well-known as his favorite wife. Rumors spread that he was building the house for her, so it gained the nickname Amelia's Palace. As for the official name of Gardo House, some believe Young got the name from a favorite Spanish novel. Construction began in 1873, and it was slow going. There were delays in obtaining the necessary building materials and in getting Young to sign off on items and make decisions. Brigham Young died on August 29, 1877, and he would never see the completion of his grand home. In his estate, Young left the still-under-construction Gardo House to marry Anne Engel Young, his second wife, and Amelia. John Taylor became the next president of the church. Officials urged him to move into the Gardo House, but he was reluctant because he thought the house was just way too lavish. 
Church members, on the other hand, had other ideas and unanimously voted in 1879 to make it the official parsonage for the church. He reluctantly moved in when the house was finally finished in 1882. Now let's talk a bit about the house. It was known as one of the finest homes between Chicago and the West Coast. It was built in the French Second Empire style. This style was used for public architecture in France during the time of Napoleon III. It was also a popular style for houses in Salt Lake at the time, but unfortunately most of those houses have been demolished over the years. Some of the characteristics of Second Empire is Mansford roofs, large porches, elaborate window surrounds, hipped dormers, double door entry with transoms, and molded cornices. The Gardo house had it all. It was four levels with a basement and a tower on the northwest corner. The basement and foundation were made of granite. Now I'm just speculating here, but maybe the granite came from the same quarry in Little Cottonwood Canyon that was used for the Salt Lake Temple. Inside walls had lath and plaster, and outside walls had two layers of lath and stucco. The interior woodwork included a spiral staircase and paneling. Decorative trim of black walnut was carved by local artists. All 46 of its rooms had elegant furnishings, paintings by local artists, and mirrors imported from Europe. I did find some discrepancies in the final cost, but it seems to have been around $80,000. That would be about $2.2 million today. Luckily, this house was well-documented in pictures. I'll post some to my socials so you can see just how extravagant this house really was. As I read in the opening newspaper article, a public reception for the opening of the Gardo House was held in January 1882. Over 2,000 tickets were sold for the event. There was a band and refreshments. John Taylor and other church authorities were present to greet the visitors. While followers of the church saw the house as a symbol of achievement, many outside the church believed this was Taylor's way to gain economic and political supremacy. Now, something else happened in 1882 that's of importance to the story. Congress passed the Edmonds Act, making polygamy a felony punishable by up to five years in prison and or a $500 fine. If you listened to episode six about the Utah Territorial Penitentiary, you remember that during the 1880s, around a thousand men and a few women spent time in the penitentiary for polygamy. One of those people just happened to be my great-great-grandfather. But that's another story for another time. Church authorities began to feel the heat when federal officers arrived in Utah to replace lawmen and enforce the act. These officers often raided homes and businesses looking for those practicing polygamy, and church officials were high on their list. Obviously, the Gardo House was one of their targets, and it was under constant surveillance. I lost count at how many newspaper articles I found about raids at the Gardo House. Sometimes when officers arrived, Taylor's sister refused them entry without a written notice from a federal judge. But every raid turned up nothing. Apparently, Taylor and his officials were well prepared for these raids. The Gardo House was decked out with hiding places galore. There were hiding places in walls and closets, hollowed out mattresses and false ceilings. They definitely went to great lengths not to get caught. 
The church took another hit in February 1887 with the passing of the Edmunds Tucker Act. This one upped the Edmunds Act. It dissolved the corporation of the LDS Church, abolished women's suffrage, disinherited children of plural marriage, abolished the territorial militia, and confiscated all of the church's property. In July of 1887, John Taylor passed away. His body laid in state at the Gardo House before his funeral. Wilford Woodruff then took over as president of the church, but he had no time to rest. Immediately after Taylor's funeral, U.S. District Attorney for Utah appointed U.S. Marshal Frank H. Dreyer as receiver for the church's property. This included the Gardo House, among other buildings, farms, mines, livestock, and corporations. Church officials were made to pay rent to use these properties. The Gardo House's monthly rent was $450. On September 26, 1890, Wilford Woodruff issued a press release called the Manifesto, which read, quote, I publicly declare that my advice to the Latter-day Saints is to refrain from contracting any marriages forbidden by the law of the land, end quote. The manifesto was approved by the church's general conference in October of that same year. In doing this, church officials hoped to regain their property and their rights as citizens. In November 1891, Woodruff gave notice that he would be vacating the Gardo House and move his offices across the street to the old church offices. During the five years the government possessed the house, the church paid over $28,000 in rental fees. Almost immediately upon him moving out of the house, it went up for rent. In January 1892, it was announced that the Keeley Institute would lease the house for $200 a month, which is significantly less than the church was forced to pay. In an article in the Salt Lake Herald Republican in January of 1892, announcing that the Keeley Institute would occupy the house, a representative of the Institute stated, quote, the company proposed to retain all the old help around the Gardo and to maintain the house so that there would be no possible offense to the church authorities who recently vacated, end quote. He went on to say that he had a conversation with the president of the church and believed that the house would ultimately come back into their possession so they would see that the reputation of the premises are kept up to a high standard. The Keeley Institutes were franchised facilities for the treatment of alcohol, drug, and nicotine addiction. There were hundreds of institutes in the U.S. and Europe. Established by Dr. Leslie E. Keeley in Dwight, Illinois, in 1879, the treatment became known as the, quote, gold cure, end quote. The four-week treatment consisted of four daily injections of bichloride of gold, as well as individually prescribed tonics every two hours. In addition, he encouraged group therapy and community involvement. Keeley is quoted as saying, quote, Inebriety is a disease, and I have a remedy that will cure it, end quote. So what exactly was in these injections? The ingredients were well guarded, but may have included strychnine, alcohol, apomorphine, willow bark, ammonia, and atropine. Most medical professionals dismissed his cure as, quote, quackery, unquote, which is probably true. But in Salt Lake, many believed in the cure. In an article from the Salt Lake Herald Republican in April of 1892, 
Dr. Arthur I. Groves, physician in charge of the Institute, boasted that, quote, 46 victims of rum turned out cure, end quote. The same newspaper ran an article in October of that year with letters of praise from patients. One letter read, quote, I only wish that all men could understand the great benefits to be derived from this wonderful cure and be persuaded to try the pleasure of sober life. My good wife never sleeps without a prayer for Dr. Groves and the Salt Lake Institute and for Dr. Keeley, the discoverer of this great blessing to all suffering as I did, end quote. Regardless if Keeley's cure actually helped or not, he was one of the first doctors to treat alcoholism as a medical and social issue and helped influence our understanding of treating addiction. A little more than a year after moving into the Gardo house, the Keeley Institute packed up and moved out in 1893. This same year, all former polygamists were pardoned and their civil rights were restored by President Benjamin Harris. A joint resolution of Congress gave the church back all its property. Now remember how the representative of the Keeley Institute said he believed Gardo House would return to the church? Well, he was right. But as far as keeping the premises in high standards, that did not happen. The Institute trashed the Gardo House. The church had to pay more than $2,000 to clean and repair the damages left behind. Moving forward, the church decided not to use the Gardo House as a parsonage and instead rented it to Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Trumbo. Trumbo was a non-Mormon businessman who lobbied in Washington, D.C. for the repeal of anti-Mormon legislation and Utah statehood. He was sure that all of his hard work would lead to him being elected as a senator for Utah. He and his wife moved into the Gardo House in 1895 and spent a significant amount of money redecorating the house and moving all their possessions from San Francisco. Utah gained statehood in January 1896, and soon Trumbull would learn that even with everything he did to help church authorities, he would not get that senatorship that he wanted so badly. Angry and defeated, Trumbull moved out of the Gardo house in 1897 and returned to San Francisco. Next to occupy the home was Mr. and Mrs. Alfred William McCune. The McCunes were building a new home and needed a place to live for the next couple of years. Church authorities lent the house to them for $150 a month. While living in the Gardo house, the McCunes painted the interior and redecorated, including adding marble statues from Italy. They moved out in 1901 to occupy their own mansion. The McHugh Mansion, located at 200 North Main Street in Salt Lake City, still stands today in all of its glory. Now, back in episode one, I told the story of Susanna Bransford and the Bransford Apartments. The Bransford Apartments just happened to be located catty-corner from the Gardo House. If you remember back to that episode, Susanna and her husband, Colonel Edwin F. Holmes, purchased the Gardo House in May of 1901, and that's where we are at in this story. The Holmeses spent their honeymoon in Europe and collected furnishings and art on their travels, all of which they moved into the Gardo house. They also spent over $75,000 to renovate the home. A Salt Lake Herald Republican article from November 1901 entitled A Salt Lake Palace stated, quote, New materials have been installed and no expense has been spared. 
The boudoir is furnished in the French style. Each room belongs to an independent school. Louis XVIII furniture and rich gothics abound. There is one oriental den where thousands have been lavished and other thousands spent in a single corner. The dining room is perhaps without a peer in the world. It is finished in rich Belgium oak along gothic lines and is simply wonderful. Mrs. Holmes' boudoir is simply a fairyland of beauty. The same is true of many other rooms. Few eastern homes, even the most famous, approach the beauty of this western palace. End quote. The time the Holmeses occupied the house is looked upon as the height of the Gardo house. Susanna and Edwin were considered the king and queen of Salt Lake society. They hosted everyone from politicians, businessmen, clergy, military officials, and high society friends, and greeted at least a couple hundred visitors a week at the house. Both were big supporters of the arts and often hosted performances at the house. In 1904, a two-story building at the cost of $10,000 was completed on the grounds. The bottom floor was a garage, and the second floor was an art gallery, ballroom, and theater. The art gallery was considered to be the finest in the West. The gallery was even open to the general public two days a week. Susanna and Edwin were spending more time at their home in California than at the Gardo house. Instead of selling the house, they offered it to the Red Cross to use until the end of World War I. A celebratory opening for the Red Cross was held in December of 1917 with a speech from Governor Spry, a band and military salute. It was attended by government and church officials, as well as community members. The Salt Lake Tribune reported in December 1970, quote, The first floor is devoted to the executive and supply departments. The second floor has offices on the west side. The large room to the east is the instruction room. To the south are the large cutting rooms, while to the south and west is located what is to be known as the transient room. This is regarded as one of the most important of facilities in being planned, that any transient or visitor who desires to do Red Cross work and who has not time to attend classes regularly may be supplied with the materials and given opportunity for work as desired. The art gallery and ballroom have been transformed into the Department of Surgical Dressings. It is ideally located and lighted, equipped with tables and other facilities, so that from 50 to 70 workers may be employed at one time, end quote. As promised, at the end of the war, the Holmeses put the house up for sale. And guess who bought it? None other than the LDS Church. The Gardo House had come full circle in its ownership. And somehow it seems fitting that this is where the Gardo House should meet its end. After some debate on what to do with the house, the church took an offer from the Federal Reserve Bank to purchase the house for $115,000 in April of 1920. At first, there was a glimmer of hope that this historic landmark would be saved. The church looked into moving the house, but ultimately decided the $20,000 price tag was just too much. The Federal Reserve Bank hired Ketchum Builder Supply in November to tear down Gardo House. Fortunately, windows, mirrors, fixtures, and other valuables were salvaged and sold at auction. Quite the crowd gathered on November 26, 1921, 
to see the Grand Dame demolished. I can imagine, just like we do today when we lose an important building, many were heartbroken to see the loss of such an important part of history and of the city. I found this quote in an article about the Gardo House in the Utah Historical Quarterly from 2000, and I think it still rings true today. Quote, The old Salt Lake is going. Slowly but surely, the landmarks that bind the Salt Lake of history to the growing metropolis of the Intermountain West are being torn down to the ground, and on the new to earth, where they once stood, are being erected modern structures, beautiful enough in design, but bare of historical interest, end quote. Okay, moving along to the Federal Reserve Bank. The Salt Lake Telegram announced on February 18, 1927, that, quote, the Salt Lake branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco will be housed in its new building on the corner of South Temple and State Street, February 21st, end quote. The bank building was designed by Don Carlos Young Jr. and Ram Hansen and built by P.J. Walker Company. Don Carlos was Brigham Young's grandson. He was a prominent architect and designed many buildings and chapels for the LDS Church, including the administrative headquarters located at 47 East South Temple. Hansen was also known for the territorial capital in Fillmore, Utah, Granite High School Science Building in South Salt Lake, now demolished, and the Park Building on the University of Utah campus. The bank was built in the neoclassical revival style, which was pretty popular style for public buildings at the time. It was rectangular with two stories. Square window bays were separated by thin plaster, giving it the appearance of columns. It also had crown molding and dental bands. On February 21st, under heavy guard, more than $12 million was moved from the Reserve Bank's old headquarters at 79 South Main Street to the newly completed building. The guards consisted of city detectives, motorcycle policemen, patrolmen, six Marines, and Henry C. Taggart, chief of the local office of the Secret Service. I bet that was quite the spectacle. In searching for news stories about the bank, I found quite a bit relating to local Sandlot baseball teams. It seems the employees of the bank played in the Bankers League, going up against the likes of Walker Bank, Utah Savings Bank, and State Bank of Utah. In August of 1927, a newspaper article in the Salt Lake Telegram stated the Mountain States Telephone Company defeated Walker Bank and threw the Federal Reserve Bank into a tie with Walker for the league title. I searched and searched for an article about who won the league title, but I could not find one. So I don't know who won, and I'm sorry to leave you hanging on that. I did find something I hope will make up for it. I wondered if there were any robberies at the bank. In researching this, I came across the 1930 trial of James Donovan. Apparently, Donovan robbed, in broad daylight, $34,200 from bank messenger A.G. Jackson as he was transferring the money from the Utah State National Bank to the Federal Reserve Bank. Four men were involved in the robbery, but Donovan's case stood out to me because this guy was quite a character. During his trial, rumors persisted that his associates were plotting to break him out of jail, so he had extra guards on him at all times. His case went to the jury on February 20, 1930, and they returned with a guilty verdict. Judge 
David W. Moffat, recommended James serve 10 years in prison. He was ultimately sentenced to five years to life. James was sent to the Utah State Prison in Sugar House. He wasn't exactly a model prisoner. In October of 1932, he and three others tried to tunnel their way out of the prison, but their attempt was thwarted. Guards discovered their plan and caught them in the act of digging. All of the men were sent to solitary confinement, but released just long enough to refill the 20-foot tunnel they had dug out with stone and dirt. In November of 1932, James was among a group of ringleaders who started a riot in the dining room of the prison, causing damage to tables and chairs and damage from a fire in the kitchen. Again, James was sent to solitary, but also faced an additional term of up to 10 more years in prison. However, this did not deter James from applying for clemency at the Board of Pardons meeting just a few weeks later. I don't think any of you will be surprised to learn that he was denied. He tried again for clemency in November of 1933 and June of 1934. Finally, in December of 1936, at the age of 38, James was released from prison after serving six years. Unfortunately, I could not find any more information about James once he left the prison. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco owned the building until 1959, when it sold the building to Zion Security Corporation, a holding company for the LDS Church. In 1965, the title was transferred to the Corporation of the President of the LDS Church, and in 66, it was transferred to the Church Finance Department. The Bank of Utah occupied the building in 1976, and as far as I can tell, remained there until 1984. That year, the Federal Reserve Bank, along with its next-door neighbor, the Medical Arts Building, which was built the same year as the bank building, were demolished to make way for the Eagle Gate Tower, which was renamed World Trade Center at City Creek in 2012. A historical marker is mounted on the South Temple entrance to the center in honor of the Federal Reserve Bank. However, there is no evidence that the Grand Gardo House ever existed on the site. Make sure to check out my Instagram and Facebook pages at Demolish Salt Lake Podcast to see photos of both the Gardo House and the Federal Reserve Bank. You can also follow me at Demolished SL Pod on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. I'll be back soon with the story of not one, but two Sears buildings. I will see you then.